Good morning. And the reading today is from Ecclesiastes chapter 4, 1 through 16. Again I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there, were power, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and is striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy and a and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fail, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after win. The word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning. Well, I hope you all are doing well. My name is Marco. I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. It's a joy to be with you this morning. In the event that you didn't hear Ephraim, if you just walked in, we're going to find ourselves in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, all of it. Okay, uh, And we're working through 16 verses today. Last week, we worked through 22 verses. If you feel as though, and this is a quick reminder to give you a little bit of perspective, especially if you weren't here last week. Um, if you think that's a lot of verses, it, 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 it kind of is. But before walking into Ecclesiastes, we originally wanted to look at Nehemiah this spring. And one of the chapters in Nehemiah has 73 verses. So the fact that we're looking at 16 gives us a little bit of relief and at the same time comfort. But be forewarned. Uh, in two weeks, we're going to be observing Holy Week. And we'd love for you to participate in that. The Sunday after Holy Week, the Sunday after Easter, when we come back to Ecclesiastes, we're going to be covering two chapters. So read ahead, get ready, make sure you start loving coffee because you're going to need it and it's God's word and that's what we're about. So uh, <laughs> let me give you a couple of things as I'm sure you've opened or load, loaded your Bibles. 
If you're new, we'd love to hang out with you um, or the opportunity to simply pray for you. Uh, and if you would allow us to, we'd love it. And, and so fill out a Connect card if, if, uh, if you would be so kind to do so. Fill out a Connect card, leave it in the Connect desk, and one of our staff team members will get with you very, very soon. In addition to that, as Ephraim read from Ecclesiastes 4, we love God's Word, we love to preach from God's Word, and therefore we love to gift God's Word. So if you don't have a Bible, let us hook you up. Let that be our gift to you. Or if you know someone who would benefit from having God's Word in their hand, take one with you and hook them up. Other than that, I'd love to dig into our time because clearly we have a lot of work to do today. Well, over the last few weeks, as you can tell, we've been walking through Ecclesiastes. We have examined and talked about a variety of challenges that we all face, challenges that we are tempted to pursue, struggles that we find hard to understand, lifestyles in accumulating everything and the result of that, seasons for everything, and then realizing within those seasons that we don't have as much control as we would love to have. But we've also examined gifts from God under the sun. Let me say it this way. We have examined gifts from God under the sun, which ultimately point us to the sun. And his name is Jesus Christ. Over the course of these last couple of weeks, we have observed what Ecclesia or what commentators about Ecclesiastes call the enjoyment passages. You saw one of them on the screen earlier, right? Uh, eat, drink, and be merry. Right? Andrew Zimmern, if you've ever watched Bizarre Foods, Andrew Zimmern goes on to say, food is great, but food with a story and people is even better. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about people community and friendships in particular. And the reason I say it that way is because when we look and consider these enjoyment passages, it's not just meant for you to eat, drink, and be merry alone. Because again, food is great, but food with a story and people is better. So we're going to be talking about relationships in particular. All of us, whether you are the most introverted person or not, all of us are relational. Because God in his nature is relational. And at the core of community and friendships and relationships is ultimately friendship. In our context, in the valley, family is a deep cultural value. One that is vibrant, one that is very embracing, and if we're honest, one that can be very challenging. And it can be challenging because sometimes, not always, but sometimes family can dismiss the necessity for friendship. Why need friends when you have family? Right? Use things like, like blood is thicker than water. C.S. Lewis, if you've ever heard of him or if you've ever read anything about C.S. Lewis, says this about friendship. None of this is up on the screen, by the way. He says this about friendship. Friendship is born at the moment when one man says to another, what, you too? That is how he would define friendship. The opening of Ecclesiastes tends to pull us back to Genesis. We see Solomon trying to recreate Eden. We see Solomon grieve over the curse of sin in our world. We see him work through the fact that Struggle now accompanies our work. And chapter 4 is no different. 
In Genesis, we see that when God created the world, the only thing that he said that was not good was for man to be alone. I would remind you that that is something before the fall of man, before chapter 3. God said, hey, what is not good is for man to be alone. And surely, yes, it pertains to marriage, but also to friendship, to community. So then, how do we best relate to one another? Who is it that you listen to? Where do you go to make friends? How do you cultivate community and friendship within the context of the local church? How do you make friends when others burned you? Are you lonely? These are all important questions. They're very good questions. And they're significant questions because they pertain first to our relationship with Jesus. You see, it is only in Jesus that we can relate with God and then relate to others with the same grace that we have first received. So, what I'd like to do is pray. I'm like hocked up on coffee. I'm trying to like chill out, but I can't. So, let me pray. And then we'll work through our time in chapter 4. Father, we praise you for the gift that is this morning. A gift that has come with new mercies. May we remember your mercy today. Lord, as we examine your word, would you give us ears to hear and hearts that are receptive to both comfort and conviction? God, we ask that your word would be sweeter to us than the taste of honey. And that those who know Jesus would draw near to him today to know him better. And that those who do not know Jesus, that by your spirit, you would draw them to yourself through the gospel of your word so that they would know him. Father, we ask for wisdom. You tell us to ask for wisdom, but to ask in faith. And so, Lord, we ask that you would give us wisdom. Lord, we ask that you would humble us this morning as well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, as we look at chapter 4, we're going to break this up into four sections so that it's a little bit more manageable. And we're going to be looking at, as I mentioned, four things. Comfort for the oppressed. If you're taking notes, don't worry about it. This is up online, and I think it's on the screen. Uh, We're going to be looking at comfort for the oppressed, contentment for the envious, community for the isolated, and then finally, counsel for the foolish. We could narrow it down to four C's, I suppose. Comfort, contentment, community, and counsel. I just thought of that just now. I didn't even know. It's crazy, right? God is so good. Anyway, chapter four, as you'll see, as we'll read in a moment, chapter four opens with a lament. Solomon is is grieved by what he is seeing under the sun as it pertains to people and relationships. And his grief, his lament is over self-absorption and self-centeredness, or I should say the self-absorption and the self-centeredness of people. It is a lament, it is a grief where he realizes that people's main focus is themselves. So consider verse 1 of chapter 4. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done 
under the sun. We see that phrase a lot in Ecclesiastes, under the sun. That is life lived in a broken world. I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun and behold the tears of the oppressed and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power and there was no one to comfort them. So he repeats himself to emphasize his grief, his lament. One writer says it this way, whether in trivial or important ways, and let me pause right there once more, the opening verse of chapter four is this lament, this grief. Solomon's heart is broken because as he sees people and as he sees relationships, what he sees is that people are more focused on themselves than others. So going back to this writer, as it pertains to you and I, whether in trivial or important ways, the one person I am always acutely aware of is me. And that's the problem. When the focus is me-centered, people always get hurt. Always. And that's Solomon's grief. And so he begins with the oppressed. This is verses 1 through 3. There are two things that we're going to address in this section. The first one, in light of what I just read, the first one is that living under the sun involves hardship. And that's not a statement that lacks apathy or, or excuse me, that's not a statement that lacks sympathy, but it is one of a reality in our broken world. Living under the sun means that we will be involved in hardship. And what you and I need to get is that just because things are the way they are, it doesn't mean that's how they're supposed to be. And so when it comes to the oppressed that Solomon is talking about, he's lamenting over them because they're lonely. There is no one to speak for them, no one to be present with them, no one to minister to them, no one to pray over them or to care for them. He laments because of the injustice that they experience at the hands of their oppressors. And you don't have to search the internet. You don't have to scan the channels of your TV to learn very quickly about the injustice and oppression that many people experience under the sun. When you consider, for instance, women and children uh, in sex trafficking who are trafficked through a variety of channels. When you consider genocide, the mass killings of a people, abortions, the mass killing of our unborn children, sexual, physical, and domestic abuse. And here's the thing, the list can go on and on and on, and those are just simply some of the worst ones, some of the extreme ones. There are other forms of oppression that often go unspoken of or unaddressed. We can find them in our context. Go talk to a doctor or a, a paramedic and ask them about what they see on the daily. Some of you have experienced this. Some of you know people that are experiencing all of this. Solomon's grief, his lament involves this little English word called a hyperbole. Y'all know what a hyperbole is? 
right, where, where he says something to exaggerate his point, and that is verses 2 and 3. He says, And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive, but better than both is he who has not yet been and has not yet seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Here's what he's saying. It is better for people to be, it is better for people to be off dead or not born because they don't have to see or further experience oppression. They are the ones who are actually more fortunate and blessed. That's what he is saying. And he, he makes this exaggeration to prove his point of just how oppressed and lonely people are because when you consider people who are oppressed, isolation makes it worse. Solomon breathes the same grief and lament that we see Jesus have in the Gospels. One of the things I told you when we opened up Ecclesiastes was that because it's an honest word, it's not the last word. And because it's not the last word, Ecclesiastes points us to our need for Jesus. And so I want you to consider Mark 7. This should be up on the screen. If it's not, you can flip over to that. Mark 7, verses 31 to 37. <clears throat> Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, Jesus put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue <laughs> and looking up to heaven. Here it is. He sighed. I want you to underline that, circle it, highlight it. Don't forget that. He sighed and said to him, Apatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. That word, he sighed, right? In its Greek translation, for you nerds. Anyway, in its Greek translation, means a groan. It is the same word that Paul uses in Romans 8, where he says that creation groans under the curse of, uh, excuse me, under the curse of sin in this world. That creation groans for the return of Christ. And so when we see this word in Mark 7, <clears throat> when we see Jesus come face to face with the brokenness of this world, whether it's a physically damaged body or a calloused heart, he groans because of the curse. Jesus' response to the brokenness and fallen nature of His creation is the same as Solomon. Whereas Solomon laments and kind of just leaves us there. Because he says, man, living under the sun is hard. Jesus lives under that same sun and does something about it, proving to us that Jesus is in the business of restoration. That even though Solomon looks at it for what it is, so does Jesus, and Jesus has the capacity and power to make all things new. They continue. Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, check it, he has done all things well. That is the language of restoration. That is the language that we see in Genesis 1 and 2, that it was called good. Ecclesiastes forces us 
to confront or come face to face with the reality of the brokenness of our world. To see it for what it really is. And in a me-centered culture, when we come face to face with all of the reality and all of this hardship, you and I tend to realize one thing. When we are confronted, we realize one thing. It is uncomfortable. It is uncomfortable. And when you and I are uncomfortable with the realities of living under the sun, we cope with distraction. We turn to comic relief to remove images of poverty and hardship. We become codependent to avoid sufferings and hard conversations. But Ecclesiastes forces us to look at the reality so that we would look to Jesus. So the first thing that we learn in verses 1-3 through three is that living under the sun involves hardship. The second thing that Solomon tells us is that there is comfort, or the, the, the antidote for the oppressed is comfort. He says that the oppressed are, are lonely because, the, because they are afflicted. And in their loneliness, their oppression only increases. And so once more, what is the antidote for oppression? The antidote is comfort. The antidote is comfort. You want to serve someone who is oppressed or walking through hardship? Comfort them. Whether it's offering dinners, counsel, involving yourself in their life, or in organizational relief, or let me say, or in presence, that is how you will comfort them. Those who are oppressed are in need of comfort. James says it this way, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And let me just say, sometimes presence is the best thing that you can do. If you've ever read Job, he experiences a great deal of hardship. This is on your notes, though I'm not going to read all of it. And as Job experiences hardship, in the second chapter, we see that his friends make their way to go hang out with their friend. It says it this way, They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. Sounds like really good friends. It's awesome. The thing is, they were really good friends up until they started talking. Job responds to them in, in chapter 16, verse 2. He says, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. Sometimes the best way to comfort someone who is afflicted or oppressed is just to show up and be quiet. Be present. Comfort is the antidote for those in oppression. Next, we move to verses 4 through 8, and we come to contentment. 
In this section, Solomon proves, or excuse me, Solomon provides us with a contrast of, of two individuals who suffer from the same thing envy. And he reveals their, their loneliness to us because, on one hand, one has no one to live for, and on the other hand, the other has simply no one. The contrast that Solomon provides for us is between what we're going to call the manic and the idol. And once more, both of these struggle, wrestle, are guilty of the same thing, and that is envy. Beginning in verse 4, Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after wind. Let me be brief, especially if you are new. The word vanity, right, is this Hebrew word called hevel. It means a breath, a vapor, a breeze. So when he says, man, this is vanity, in other words, he says, this is going to be gone soon. This doesn't matter. What's the point of this if it's here one day and it's gone the next? And you'll see this other phrase called striving after wind. And one of the things that Solomon recognizes is that people are constantly chasing their dreams, chasing uh, certain kinds of lifestyles, chasing answers, chasing after the meaning of life, and they're striving after wind. In other words, they're just trying to grab wind. And when they think they have, in this case, the meaning of life, it's like catching smoke. It just disappears. So the more you see these phrases, you will know what he's talking about now. So, let's look at the manic. In a nutshell, the manic is a workaholic. It's pretty easy. In verse 4, he says, Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. The word all, he's introducing another hyperbole. In other words, he's exaggerating his point, or he's exaggerating something to make a point. He's saying the one who, uh, the, the workaholic is the one who is putting in long hours at work or is at the office Monday through Sunday. And Solomon provides us with some characteristics of the manic. And then he provides us with some characteristics of the idol. And then he wraps it all up with a proverb because he's cool. Okay. Well, as we look at the manic, remember both of them are guilty of envy. Both of them are guilty of envy, so that, let's look at envy for a moment. When it comes to envy, this isn't just that these individuals are jealous of their friends or neighbor. It's that their jealousy is masked with generosity. In actuality, they want their friends to fail. Those who are envious don't simply covet why someone has what they feel they should have. Their heart, their heart is one for ruin. I want you to think about that. It's not just that they're jelly. It's that their selfishness, their desire for their friend to fall or fail is masked with generosity. In other words, when a friend succeeds, they would be the ones that hug the friend and say, man, I'm so glad this happened to you. Awesome on the promotion. But inside the crevices of their heart, they desire for them to fall. 
It is selfishness masked with generosity. It is the hug that an individual gives another individual. And even though on the surface it says, hey, good job, well done, internally, it is I should have that. Why don't I have that? Why isn't that me? And so the manic is the one that constantly is pushing, not just envy, but is the one who is consumed by their work. And because they're consumed, they're consumed by their work because they're envious. And Proverbs 14 tells us what happens with envy. He goes on to say, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. This is why envy is so dangerous. Check it. Envy is so dangerous because it's subtle. Envy is dangerous because it's subtle. And let's talk about the context of the local church. Envy comes out in the form of gossip that is masked with a request for prayer. So-and-so did this or this happened to them. Could you just pray for me? Because I'm really struggling. You use that Christianese language. Struggling. Having a hard time. I haven't unspoken. Whatever that means. Right? Like all of these different Christian sprinkles. And it's really just masking the gossip that you're really trying to push and the envy that you're trying to hide. And Christians, let's just be real, right? When we're in Ecclesiastes, Christians, we do this really well through prayer requests, through blogging, through spiritual disciplines like journaling. Do it really well. But at the heart is one for envy. Additionally, if it's not gossip, then it is a calloused heart. How do you know you have a calloused heart? When someone else fails, you rejoice. When you rejoice at withholding grace. When you rejoice because one is genuinely struggling or confessing sin. That's how you know you have a calloused heart. And what has taken root is envy. Further, the manic, Solomon writes, puts it all on the line. So, so they're consumed by their work because they, at the heart they're envious. And so, so they're the ones that put it all on the line by sacrificing everything, learning that they've lived for no one and are full of emptiness. He goes on to say in this same section, he goes on to say, uh, this is verse 8. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no, no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? See, the irony of the manic is that they have everything, yet find themselves unhappy, unfulfilled, and lonely. That they come to realize I don't, I'm not living for anyone because I have no one. They're connected but isolated, important while at the same time insignificant. They are full, yet they will die 
of starvation. That's the manic. And then he gives us a contrast. And we have the idol. Right? When you read through Proverbs, Proverbs would call this individual the sluggard. Here Solomon calls him the fool. In short, the fool is envious and it comes out not in gossip, it comes out in laziness. Where one spends too much time in an office, the other one could do a really good job of getting in an office. Right? He goes on to say, the fool folds his hands. So the fool who is lazy, who either doesn't have a job or isn't picking up his slack, the fool is the one who folds his hands and just stays on someone else's hammock and just waits. And then he goes on to say, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. He eats a personal knuckle sandwich. In other words, <laughs> they begin to feed on themselves because they are upset because others haven't provided for them. So you might not be the manic. You might not be the one that like sprinkles Christianese over your envy. And if you should, if you do, let me invite you to repent. Perhaps you're the idol. You're the one that gets upset when others don't hook you up with what you think they ought to hook you up with. We did our Ash Wednesday service and I think we were in Isaiah 58. And in Isaiah 58, the people of God are fasting. And as they're fasting, they cry out to God and say, and say, haven't you seen that we have been fasting? Why have you not seen us? Why have you not heard us? Do you not see what we're going through? And God flips it on them. Because here's the thing. They were upset that God called them to fast and then fasted, and then they were upset because God isn't giving them what they want. That's the idol. The one who is envious through their laziness, who does nothing. And it doesn't just have to be the context of work. It could be relational. The one who does nothing and folds his hands and then gets upset when people don't meet their provision, gets upset when people don't meet their expectations. And so Solomon concludes or, or wraps up this section with a proverb. This is verse 6. He says, Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. The word quietness can refer to calmness or contentment. Content with what you have. In other words, he goes on to say, With one hand, you're going to work diligently. With the other hand, there's quietness. And what is that quietness used for? Contentment in serving others. Because what does the manic and what does the idol do? They are hunting, they are striving after wind with two hands, trying to get whatever it is that they can. And the irony is that they have fistfuls of air. These two individuals are full of emptiness, full of wind and gluttony. They are lonely because they lack contentment. Christian, let me ask you, are you content? Contentment fights against bitterness, increases thanksgiving, and produces generosity. 
How do you cultivate contentment? Very simple. Maybe not easy, but simple. Give more. See, giving is not simply, but it is foremost an act of grace. It keeps you from being a consumer and makes you a contributor. Isn't that what the body of Christ is all about? If that rubs you the wrong way, it's probably because you're a consumer. 1 Timothy 6, Paul says it this way, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Money's not a thing. It's the love of money. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You want to grow in contentment? Give more away. Like, well, we're new. It's our first Sunday. Pastor's talking about giving. I'm not talking about giving. I'm talking about contentment. You can listen to giving in other sermons. Contentment is the antidote for the manic and the idle. Contentment is the antidote for the envious. Number three. We find ourselves now in verses 9 through 12. We're looking at community and friendships. And this is an encouraging word because in this section, Solomon just simply writes practically. He's not just writing poetically. He just writes very practically about friendship. And so to keep it practical and to keep it simple, we learn or are reminded in this section of 9 through 12 that in community we flourish. In relationships, we flourish. And so Solomon provides us with four examples, and not even contrasts, right? So the first section, we looked at uh, this lament, his grief. The second section, we're looking at a contrast. Here, we're just looking at practical application, right? Like, you're asking the question, like, man, what, you know, why are, uh, why are friends good? Solomon's going to be like, well, let me tell you. Here's the first one. All right, 9 through 12, he says, two are better than one. Sounds easy, right? Because they have a good reward for their toil. Simply put, Solomon says that when we work together as a collective, when we share responsibility, we're rewarded for the work that we do. That's it. You might say, yeah, I get that, but I like to work alone, like you're some kind of Batman, right? But even Batman had Commissioner Gordon and Alfred, two characters that never receive the praise that they deserve. So, let me ask, who are those individuals in your life right now? Don't give me that I work alone, because you don't. Who are those individuals in your life right now? Perhaps, maybe, the reason you can't identify them or you can't see them is because your ultimate desire is yourself. You are very me-centered. So, two are better than one. When we work on something together, we're going to be rewarded. That could be because we finish the project fast or maybe we just get double the money. I don't know. Number two. Why are two better than one? Because one will help you up when you fall. So number two is encouragement 
and exaltation. Right? So here's what he says. <clears throat> Two are better than one, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. When we take it at face value, the context here is that of the Far East. Okay? And in this time, if you traveled alone, that was incredibly and extremely dangerous. Because if you got hurt, there was a chance that you would not make it out alive. So there's some traveling tips for you, I suppose, right? Travel in pairs. It's always good, right? But there are also some practical principles for community, like encouragement. Like when you fall and you have a brother or a sister who is there to encourage you, to help you up, to listen to you, to be present, to hear you out, to walk with you, to disciple you, to meet your needs. In addition to that, when you fall, there's someone to exhort you, to come alongside you, not call you a failure, but look at maybe the poor decision that you just made and work through it together, walking with you, involving themselves in your life, maybe even a rebuke. A rebuke doesn't always have to be this harsh word, but it is a firm one. It is something serious. Encouragement and exhortation. Very practically, that's why friendship is good. Because we get to encourage one another. We get to exhort one another. We get to lift each other up. Number three, receiving care. He goes on to say, Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? So the word again means that he's not letting us not see the practical benefits and the reality of community. Further, if we take it at face value, he's essentially saying, hey, when you're out camping in the Far East, <laughs> or when you're traveling in the desert, it gets cold at night. And if it's just you and your boy, hey man, when you lie together, you're going to get warm because of body heat. It's science. That's it, right? He's not trying to do something else. Everybody, like, a lot of people will even quote this at weddings. It's just weird. Right? People will quote this at weddings, and then what ends up happening is people who are single feel left out, and so they try to make it super spiritual to convey some hidden meaning, and there isn't a hidden meaning. It's just, hey man, when you're cold and you lay with someone, body heat takes over. That's it. That is it. One of the guys went camping last week, and him and his wife took their, their kids and he tells me that uh, he forgot the sleeping bags for the kids. And he had one sleeping bag for, for both of their kids. And he says, so they had to share. That is Ecclesiastes 4.11 in action. That's it. Why? Because it gets cold, right? Nonetheless, in community, coming back, right? In community, when we are we-centered and not me-centered, we meet the needs of one another. We care for one another. That's literally what the body does for one another. That's literally how we flourish. Number four, protection. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. This is another uh, verse um, that is often quoted at weddings. 
And with a great deal of spirituality, especially because of the, the, the phrase threefold cord, and people are like, right, threefold cord, that's, that must be the Trinity? Or like in the context of marriage, right? They'll be like, right, that's husband, wife, and God, right? Like that's how, that's how we're going to live. It's us and the Holy Spirit, right? And like the idea is, no, that's not what he's saying, right? Here's what, what he's saying. In community, you got one another's back. That's it. Okay. When you're by yourself, you're probably going to get beat up. Spiritually and, and maybe physically. I say maybe because some of you have some skills, right? But nonetheless, spiritually, if you're walking alone, you're going to get shot at. And you will more than likely go down. And so when it comes to the context of community, we protect one another. Sure, that could mean physical protection. And that's a good thing to hear. Man, I got your back. At the same time, it's spiritual protection. Elsewhere in 1 John, he goes on to say that if you see a brother headed into sin, that you are to throw yourself in there to pull them out of it, to not only pray for them, but to address it. Jude says something similar, that we are to throw ourselves into the lives of our friends so that we would snatch them out of the fire. James says something similar. So yeah, physical protection is cool. It's needed. So is spiritual protection. Emotional protection, when you're just present with one another. The reason we flourish in community is because we are relational. We are hardwired for relationships. And in community, we flourish for two reasons. And these two reasons are the key to discipleship. Let me say that one more time. In community, we flourish. And the reason we flourish or let me say it this way, we flourish for two reasons. One, we are known. Two, we are challenged. Those are the two things essential for discipleship. Those are the two things that are the key to growth and maturity, and they're produced in community. The author of Hebrews says it this way, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. That word, that little phrase, stir up, that means to create friction. As we are getting to know one another, we're going to create friction. That means you're going to be challenged. And the reason I'm challenging you is so that you would grow and so that you would mature both in your faith and as adults. He continues, to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Being known and being challenged are the key to growth and maturity that is produced in community. And here's the concern I have with this. Some of you don't want to be known or challenged. And then you get upset like the idol you get upset when you respond immaturely to circumstances, seasons, and realities that you are faced with only so that you would become victims of your circumstance. On those occasions, you're not a victim. You're just immature. I'm not knocking victims. Let me just tell you that. I'm not knocking that. We're talking specifically of the individual who doesn't want to be known or challenged. When we are not known and when we are not challenged, we will not grow. When we are not known and when we are not challenged, 
Put it very simply, we forfeit our sanctification. Okay? Community is the antidote for isolation. And so we come to the last one, verses 13 to 16. We arrive at this final section on counsel. So we've covered a lament. We've looked at a contrast. We've laid out practical applications for loneliness. And now we return to a contrast in the context of leadership. And he gives us two kings. Let's read it very, very quickly. Right? It's almost time. Here we go. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. He gives us two kings. He says, on one end, there was one king who was young and wise. In essence, he has a rags-to-riches story. He succeeded, uh, succeeded the former king, but at the same time, even though he led well and even though people followed him, he was forgotten. And what does Solomon want us to know other than the fact that it's vanity? Popularity is short-lived. So if you still want to live in high school, it stinks to be you, right? <clears throat> Popularity is short-lived. The other king is old and foolish. What does Solomon want us to learn? That this king stopped listening to wisdom and he ruled poorly. And the reason he was lonely is because he neglected counsel. And so there's this contrast between these two individuals. Proverbs 11 says, where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. In addition to that, this old king who grew to be foolish died alone. John Steinbeck, interestingly enough, says this, when a man comes to die, no matter what his talents and influence and genius, if he dies unloved, his life must be a failure to him and is dying a cold horror. Here's the bottom line. Just because you're older doesn't mean you're wise. And just because you're young doesn't mean you know what is best. Proverbs is a book of usually, but not always. The question isn't necessarily how old you are, although that can be the case, but whether or not you're wise enough to receive counsel. Whether or not you are wise enough to receive counsel. Fools ignore counsel, young and old. And whether you're in leadership whether you're a spouse, a parent, a student, fully employed, a business owner, I don't care. The question is whether or not you are wise and humble in receiving counsel. In all of these areas, oppression, envy, isolation, or leadership, the thing is, as we're wrapping it up, the thing is, when we are me-centered, people always get hurt. Always. Counsel is the antidote for the foolish. So at the end of our time, I've shared the antidotes for oppression, envy, isolation, and the foolish. The antidotes are the four C's, right, that we just thought of together at the start of our time. Comfort, contentment, community, and counsel. It's wonderful. We could just wrap it up there. But if this is true, 
we must also understand that these antidotes, when left to themselves, are still incomplete. They still fall short. We need the source of these antidotes in order to draw the antidote out for ourselves and for one another. And the source for these antidotes is found and embodied in Jesus. You see, left to themselves... These antidotes fall short because we fall short. If we are outside of Jesus, that is, if we do not have a relationship with Jesus, then in order for these antidotes to work properly as they ought to, we must first be reconciled to God. And for the Christian, Jesus has done this great work for you in two ways, his incarnation and in his death. That he entered into human history as the man Jesus Christ, and he lived a life that we cannot live and dies a death on our behalf for our sin. And with that being said, that's the irony of all of this. The irony of all of this is that Jesus suffered alone so that we might be reconciled to the Father. Falsely arrested with no one to defend him, abandoned by his friends, forsaken by the Father, and left crucified and died alone. And through his death and resurrection, not only do we have access to the Father, the forgiveness of our sins, and the cleansing of our consciousness, but we have a relationship with God. We have a relationship with God because of Jesus. And so when Jesus says this in Matthew 22, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You can see that these commands are relational. And because they're relational, they allow us to relate with God because of Jesus and to one another because of Jesus. Comfort, contentment, community, counsel are all found in Jesus. And as we surrender to his lordship, and as we are confronted with our sin and brokenness, we are made new through his work for us. And as a result, we are then able to bring that before one another. Inside of the church and outside of the church. I tell you this every week. Ecclesiastes is a hard word because it's an honest word. It's an honest look at life under the sun but it is not the final word. It is not the final word as Ecclesiastes points us to life above the sun and through the sun, Jesus Christ. So Christian, are you in need of comfort? How are you in cultivating contentment? Are you in need of community or counsel? Turn to the Lord Jesus first. He embodies them. And then turn to a brother or sister, whether it's in confession or simply in need to be present with someone else. And if you're the, the envious, if you're the isolated, if you're the foolish, let me, let me invite you to repent and to come before the Lord Jesus, to surrender to His Lordship and enjoy the grace that he has bestowed upon you. And if you're not a Christian, I love that you're here. Thank you. And you may be really good at those things, those four C's. You may be really good at them. 
But here's the thing. Those antidotes mean nothing apart from a foundation or a source. And if you say that the source is just love, then the question is, well, where does that love come from? If it's your own understanding of love, then it is flawed because that understanding can be me-centered or simply broken. In Jesus, these antidotes are embodied by him and are gifts to be given to those who turn to him in repentance to receive new hearts who are willing to be filled by his grace. In Jesus, and because of Jesus, we can relate with God and we can relate to one another in love. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you that we are tempted to isolate. We are tempted to hide and pull away from you and from one another. And so, Father, we confess our sins before you. We confess our self-centeredness. We confess that we can be all about me instead of we. Father, we confess whatever sin is a burden to us. Whatever sin is a bother to us. And at the same time, Father, we confess we confess the sin that isn't a bother to us. The kind of sin that no one knows about. And the reason it's not a bother is because we have grown used to it. We confess this before you as a church. Father, please forgive us. Please send your, your Holy Spirit to us. Your word says that you have supplied us with the strength needed because you have met our deepest need through faith in Jesus. So this morning, may your grace pour out onto us so that we might walk in your light for your glory and our good. May the meditation of our heart and the words of our mouth be pleasing to you this morning. Amen.